Thanks, Mark. Let's turn, please, to Acts 14. We're going to continue today in our teaching through the book of Acts. That is where we have been now for a while as a congregation. This text goes along well with what Mark just prayed for us, and that is that we would be people that learn to lay up treasure where it will not be corrupted or destroyed. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 14 today, which I believe if we will have eyes to see and if the Spirit will help us, we will find that this text shows us how to treasure and how to invest. The truth of the matter is, for those of us who live in 21st century America, we are historically wealthy. And even chronologically right now, globally speaking, we are. It doesn't always feel that way whenever we see the random person drive by on 315 in a brand new Lamborghini, but historically speaking, comparatively speaking, we've got a lot going for us. But the truth of the matter is, whether you're wealthy or whether you're not, we all have this call to invest well. And we also have the call to consider what we treasure. Jesus spoke of this, and we'll look at a couple of passages in just a bit from Matthew's gospel, but Jesus spoke of this primarily to people who didn't have a lot, people who would have been day laborers, who lived a bit hand-to-mouth, who if they didn't get up in the morning and take care of their livestock or tend their fields or make the next bench or whatever their trade was, they wouldn't eat that night. So that means that whether you are historically wealthy, comparatively speaking, or whether you understand deprivation, that all of us as image bearers have this call upon us. You have to think that God wanted the world to be that way. God created a world that He knew full well would fall into sin. But God intended to rescue those fallen image bearers, not just so they could have eternal life, not just so they could be pardoned. More than that, that they could learn once again to delight in God. God is not responsible, ultimately, morally, culpably, for the sinfulness of humanity. But God designed a world in which His grace would be highlighted. And part of the highlighting of that grace was to give rescued sinners more than pardon, but to give them renewal and to examine them over the course of a lifespan to see what it is they really treasured. If you think about it, we talked about that last week from Hebrews chapter 11 in our joint gathering with Berlin. Abraham and Sarah and their offspring looked for a better city whose designer and builder was God, living in temporary dwellings, 
not clinging to the things of the past which provided security, the known, but striving toward the unknown because they treasured God more, willing to suffer loss to gain something far better. And as we look at the disciples here, these two apostles, Paul and Barnabas, in Acts chapter 14, I think it provides for us another opportunity to examine ourselves and to determine what it is that we treasure and what we are investing in. So, with that in mind, let's read together Acts chapter 14. Once again, this is the Word of the Lord. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Remember, they had been driven out of Pisidian Antioch because of their preaching of the gospel, so they just found another place where they could go preach the gospel. Verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews, much as they had experienced in Antioch, stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And the crowd saw what Paul had done. They lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk on their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. On the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every city with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. 
Then they passed, verse 24, through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch. This is Syrian Antioch, where they had been sent out from, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. The first thing that we will see today, I've got a little computer issue there. First thing we'll see today is that joining the Lord Jesus on His rescue mission requires measured sacrifice. This means that we have to take stock of what it is we are doing. Trusting Jesus is more than just hanging out and waiting for Him to resurrect us so we can hang out in some ethereal cloud somewhere and play a golden stringed instrument. Salvation is for the future, but salvation is also for now. And there is a calling put upon us to join the Lord Jesus on His rescue mission. Which means that ultimately, any call to evangelism, any call to community or global-based missions is ultimately His deal. We can err with two extremes. We can either ignore our call to be witnesses to the Messiah altogether out of fear, out of preoccupation, out of ignorance... That's one extreme, to ignore it altogether. On the other hand, we can, we can wear it with such a heavy type load, like a burden on our backs, that we think that the success of the spread of the gospel is up to us alone. Both extremes are wrong. Ultimately, as we have talked about, as we've talked through the book of Acts, the book of Acts is what Jesus is continuing to do and teach. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, also wrote a gospel, and he says in his gospel that when Jesus came, he taught and he did things. He he exposed who people were and instead pointed them to God to turn away from their own self-reliance. And then he died for them, and he rose from the grave to accomplish their salvation. But then he ascended back to heaven. But that's not the end of the story. And it's not the end of His redemptive work. The very fact that we are sitting here together today embracing the gospel of Jesus, wanting to know Him more and serve Him more faithfully, is because He sought us. The very fact that we are sitting here today is a sign that Jesus continues to be on mission. And He invites us to join Him on that mission. But but in doing so, in recognizing that our salvation is not just for the future, but for now. And we are called to, to invite others into that mission. That's part of the design of our salvation. We have to take stock. We have to think about what the call upon us is. We have to measure out 
what it is we are willing to sacrifice for Him. But the promise that He gives us is that all of our loss, as we talked about last week and we're going to talk about it again today, any loss that we suffer will be rewarded beyond measure. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Matthew chapter 6. This passage is familiar to us. It's one that rings in most of our ears if we've been Christians for any amount of time because we recognize our tendency to struggle with what Jesus points out here. So Again, Jesus is mostly speaking to people who didn't have that much. How much more those of us who have so much. The Lord said, Do not lay up for yourselves, Matthew 6.19, treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What does this practically mean for us as a corporate body, as a church? Well, if nothing else, it's a call to take stock of what we've been blessed with. To measure what we have and what the needs around us call for. How the particular giftings He's given us, whether they be material or immaterial, stuff like money or the use of our gifts that have been given to us like kindness and compassion and generosity, wisdom, discernment, to measure out what we've been given to discern the needs around us and to see how we can meet those needs. It's at least that. The Lord Jesus was not saying here, that everybody has to sell everything and then we create some sort of Christian commune and we live in abject ascetic poverty and give it all away. That, that's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here will take a lifetime to discern and figure out. This is not a one-size-fits-all. This is not a one-for-all, once-for-all kind of text. This is the kind of text that we have to rest under for most of our lives. The truth of the matter is we often love the material things and the immaterial things that Christ has granted us more than we love Him. And the question is, what ultimately brings us the deepest satisfaction? And again, this is not a once-for-all text where we draw a line in the sand and we're never the same again. This is the kind of text that we return to again and again and again over the course of our lives 
because our hearts, our affections are so easily drawn away. How does this relate to Acts chapter 14? The two guys that are doing the preaching had just come out of a city where they had experienced a good bit of success. But ultimately, they were driven out. Their very lives were in danger. Who were these two guys? Well, if you haven't been around for most of our teaching through the book, Barnabas was a wealthy guy. He had everything he needed. He would have been one of the wealthier people in the original church in Jerusalem, wealthy enough to sell a portion of land and donate it to the church. He didn't lack for stuff. He had a a life of comfort. Paul was the same. Paul was a leading rabbi of his day, a theological expert, perhaps virtually peerless when it came to his abilities and to his training. The future for him was bright. He would have had a life of acclaim, prestige, and like Barnabas, comfort. But here you find them in Pisidian Antioch. Lies are told about them, and they're driven out. You might think that they would hightail it for the coast, catch a ship, head back to Syrian Antioch, maybe teach there because it seemed to be relatively comfortable there. But instead, they travel on, find more cities, and as we read in Acts chapter 14 just a few minutes ago, face more persecutions, the pinnacle of which for them was that Paul was actually stoned and everybody thought he was dead. You wonder if Paul ever had those moments where he thought when opposition was coming his way or a large rack rock was crushing his cranium, I used to have it pretty easy. I was comfortable. I was respected. And Lord, I've joined you on your rescue mission, and look what it's gotten me. But he never gave in to those voices because he kept on going. He was willing to, to lay his life down because Jesus was better. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Matthew chapter 19. Perhaps a bit less well-known, but poignant nonetheless. You know the story, perhaps, of the rich young man. Verse 16 of Matthew 19, Behold, a man came up to him, to the Lord Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? He said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these have I kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. 
When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. In a sense, and hear me carefully before you start judging, in a sense, Jesus is putting conditions on this man's salvation. Now, this is the 501st anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, right? You all knew that. You all got up this morning and were super excited to come celebrate together. A few of you are nodding your head because you actually did. You had a, a mighty fortress playing in the car on the way over. Um, our church has and always will hold to the biblical teaching that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That will never change. However, there are obstacles to getting to that point. Because ultimately, getting to the point where you trust Christ's grace alone is going to cost you something. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's, he's not adding to justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and himself alone. But he's causing this rich young man to, to question himself, to query himself, to measure out what it is he actually treasured. So Jesus then says to his disciples, truly, verse 23, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, with God all things are possible. In other words, only God can overcome the obstacles that get us to the point that we trust Jesus and Jesus alone. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? It's hard to know the motives of his heart. Were they pure, were they not? hard to say. The text doesn't necessarily clarify. But then Jesus says, truly I say to you in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life, that many who are first will be last and the last first. I, I, I want to be somewhat charitable to Peter's question because of the way Jesus answers. It's a natural question. What will we gain if we give up? If, if we measure out this, this call to sacrifice, what's going to happen? What will be the result? What will be the dividend? What will be the return on our investment? Jesus is saying, It'll be beyond your imagination. So when the stones are flying, literally or metaphorically, that'll test what we value. And, and Satan will do his dead level best to disrupt our faith. What led to Paul's stoning is that some of the opposition from Antioch, where they had just fled the city in Antioch, came a hundred miles. Now, remember, there wasn't Uber back then, right? These people probably walked a hundred miles, seething the whole way with bloodlust. And they finally get to the place where 
Paul and Barnabas are preaching and they incite the crowds against them. And Paul is stoned and left for dead. But Paul, who had been called out of a life of comfort and certain prestige, believed against what his eyes saw and what his body felt and what his mind told him that Jesus was worth more. And he and Barnabas laid their lives down for the sake of Christ. Most of us will probably not go to a land where it is illegal to preach the gospel and put our very physical lives in the line. Most of us won't do that. Although maybe some of us should. And maybe someday some of our kids will. But we are called every day to lay our lives down for the sake of Christ. This means that we should, like Paul and Barnabas, be willing to to push back against the darkness. To go into our communities, our places of work, where we are rubbing shoulders with people who have never even heard the gospel. Or at least never really understood it. Whose God is their own self-righteousness and their own possessions. And little by little, injecting the light into their darkness. Because Jesus is worth it. The Lamb is worthy of receiving the reward for His sufferings. And the greatest reward that will accrue to Him is more and more disciples one day praising Him as their Savior and King. And we are the means whereby people hear And eventually embrace Him as Savior and King. He's worthy to receive the reward of His suffering. So whenever we push back against the darkness, injecting light into the darkness, we are like Paul and Barnabas making a value decision. Believing that what will accrue to us one day is better than what we will lose. The Christian faith is nothing if it's not a constant measuring out of what we are willing to lose because of what we will certainly gain. But it's not just whenever we share the good news with those who have not yet embraced it. There's other ways to push back against the darkness. And and just to encourage you for a moment, because I've been challenging you, let me me encourage you for a few moments. I, I watch you doing this all the time. In a very simple way, this morning, you don't have to be here. You could be setting up your fantasy league team to make sure that you win 50 or 100 bucks at the end of the year. You could be sitting in front of the fireplace on a cold, gray Ohio day, drinking a warm beverage. You're here because Jesus is better. I watch our volunteers do this all the time. I watch you come in early in the morning to set up this really posh, comfortable setup where we worship. And I know it's not always fun, 
I know you wish you had more help, but you're pushing back against the darkness whenever you serve Jesus in that way. It's a big deal. The people who are serving are babies in the nursery right now who would rather be sitting in here, or the teachers who are teaching kids' church right now, shaping little minds and hearts, piercing the darkness with light. It's beautiful. Moms, Mother's Day should probably come more than once a year, right? Because you need encouragement. It's easy to get discouraged and to believe lies. Moms, every day, though you're doing the same thing over and over and over again, changing diapers, washing clothes, repeating yourself a million times, thinking that your kids will never grow up or change. You're pushing back against the darkness a little bit every day when you sacrifice yourself for your children. Moms and dads who go off and do their thing, their occupation every day, you're entering into the darkness and constructively laying your lives down for your families. Those of you who went to the food pantry this past Wednesday and, and served people who don't have very much, you, you're pushing back against the darkness a bit. Those of you who are coming along with us and willing to take the risk of going into some unknown with this merger, we're, we're willing to trust Jesus to walk into the unknown, pushing back against the darkness because we believe that the mission is more important than our comfort. Those of you who adopt kids and foster kids, like Kim and Andy right now, who are not sleeping very much. I got my liturgy slides this morning at like 3.30 a.m. because Andy was up with a crying baby that they don't have to foster, but they are because they believe it's worth pushing back against the darkness because Jesus is better. My friends, we will lose over and over and over again but we fundamentally believe, like Barnabas and Paul, that living for the glory of Jesus is worth it. And it will certainly bring opposition, sometimes with those we love the most. Let's look in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So in this text, we find challenge to continue to, to suffer loss because of what we'll gain. That's going to be a lifelong process, my friends. But I want to say to you, it's a privilege, and I know the other elders would say the same thing, it's a privilege to shepherd you because we see you doing this all the time. And if it's appropriate to say it like this, we couldn't be more proud of you. But there's a long way to go. So, joining the Lord Jesus on His rescue mission, whether it's 
dangerous evangelism that might cost us our very lives. And, and right now, my friends, there are people all around the world who are, who are literally going through that. It's not just something from 2,000 years ago. There were more martyrs in the past century than in the combined previous 19. Joining the Lord Jesus on His rescue mission will require measured sacrifice. But all of our loss, whether it's our very lives for the sake of the gospel or, or metaphorically laying our lives down to push back against the darkness in all kinds of creative ways, all that loss will be rewarded beyond measure, I promise. This text also reveals to us that there will be moments along the way that test our hearts. You remember back in Acts chapter 14, and if you're not there, I invite you to turn back. When Paul and Barnabas came to Lystra, and Paul was given power from the Lord Jesus to heal this crippled man, who, by the way, was not just recently crippled. He had never walked, which means he had no muscle tone. Not only was it a miracle that he could get up and walk again, the very constitution of his, of his anatomy had to change on the spot. The Lord Jesus can do anything that He wants, and He gave Paul the power to heal this man. And the people in Lystra are amazed. There was a legend in Lystra that Zeus and his spokesperson Hermes had at one time visited that region. This was a legend that they told over and over. And now that they see this miraculous thing happen that they had never seen before, of course, they call Barnabas Zeus, the powerful God, and Paul his spokesperson Hermes, and they start to sacrifice to them. There would have been temptation here for Paul, who had been so resoundingly rejected back in Antioch and Pisidia, to, to accept such a claim. But Paul fundamentally, and Barnabas along with him, fundamentally believed that they were not the Messiah for the people of Lystra. Jesus was, and Jesus is. One of the things that happens along the way from time to time is we'll be tested to see what it is we actually really treasure. If these people in Lystra were satanically incited, which I think we could safely say they were, Paul and Barnabas were tested to go back to a life of acclaim and comfort rather than trusting in the Lord Jesus and being willing to lay their lives down for Him, to sacrifice and suffer loss because of what they would one day gain. And that's the way Satan works. Satan, the name, literally means opposer. Satan is the opposer of all things good and holy. He is the opposer of God, and he is the opposer of God's people. He can drum up the kind of opposition that will travel a hundred miles on foot, seething with bloodlust, to stone the apostles. Or he can drum up the kind of acclaim from the crowds that will perhaps draw your hearts away to a life of comfort and prestige. But all of this is in the hands of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is never surprised by what the opposer will do, whether it be through stark opposition or the offer of baubles, temporary fleeting pleasures that look really flashy and alluring but ultimately can't satisfy. Satan is crafty if he is nothing else. 
When Paul and Barnabas had a deep confidence in Jesus and a deep treasuring of Jesus. And I think that, that this important application would be well suited here. Whether we are suffering the clear, direct opposition of the opposer, Satan, or whether he is tempting us with temporary pleasures that, that allure us but we know cannot ultimately satisfy, moments of opposition can discourage us. Moments of allurement can threaten our very souls. But what we need along the way, both in moments of stark opposition and moments of allurement, where our, our affections might be drawn away for false messiahs, is we need companions. You need truth-tellers in your life. Paul wasn't alone here. He was with Barnabas and the others that came to faith in Jesus and began to grow in their faith in Jesus. You need truth-tellers in your life who will help you when the opposition comes to not lose heart. And you need truth-tellers in your life who will warn you away from the false messiahs that will sap your affection for Jesus. Who are those people in your life? Do you have them? It could be a spouse, hopefully. As your children grow, hopefully it's, it's them too. I was talking to one of you before the service and you were talking about your two grown children and how one of them is, is growing so much in his faith right now and it's so exciting for you to see and having an impact on the rest of your family. That has to be super exciting to watch. Truth tellers, encouraging faith along the way. Surround yourself with those kinds of people. If you don't have those kinds of people, pray for those kinds of people to come into your life. And then be those kinds of people. This takes a great deal of discernment. You have to be the kind of person who can see through things. You have to be the kind of person who is willing to suffer difficult experiences, who can learn from your own failures, and then creatively and in a timely fashion, apply such wisdom to other people's hearts. It's one of the reasons we often at the end of our worship gathering say to you, spend time talking to each other and talk about things that matter. Because there will be moments along the way that test our hearts and because we have to continue to to point people to Jesus as the Messiah, we have to turn away from anything that will draw a claim to ourselves or we become someone's functional Messiah. Be careful about that as parents. You are not your children's Messiah. Be careful about this whenever you are a disciple maker. You are not your disciple's Messiah. Jesus is and He alone can be. And the third thing that this text reveals to us is that the mission ultimately belongs to the Lord. And as a result, we must learn to trust and obey. Paul and Barnabas could have easily given up, but they didn't. 
And they kept going into dark places, trusting the Lord Jesus. At the end of the text, they return home. They go back to Syrian Antioch. They tell their friends what had occurred in their first missionary journey. And they are encouraged by their brothers and sisters there. The church became a great place of comfort for Paul and Barnabas in the midst of their trial. They had to retreat, and in their retreating, they were filled up again to eventually be released for for more missions work. God had proven Himself faithful to Paul and Barnabas by rescuing them out of death. By all accounts, Paul should have died whenever he was in Lystra, but God rescued him. Ultimately, God was the one who was going to take care of the churches. And notice in verse 23, they made a return journey back through dangerous places. They went back to the very places where their greatest opponents lived, like like Antioch, you see in verse 21. And along the way, they established the churches by making sure they had good elders to watch over them. Paul and Barnabas could not be everywhere all the time. Ultimately, they knew that the the success of these churches, the long-term health of these churches, really had very little to do with Paul and Barnabas. It was going to be up to the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus. And so they established shepherds, elders in those churches to take care of them. Paul and Barnabas trusted the Lord. In verse 3, we found that they spoke boldly for the Lord. And then notice what it says about the Lord. So verse 3, they spoke boldly for the Lord, and then the Lord Jesus bore witness to the word of His grace by granting signs and wonders. So what did Paul do? What did Barnabas do? They did their job because they trusted that the Lord would ultimately be responsible for it all. And the Lord Jesus proved Himself faithful along the way. We know that because disciples were made. We know that because Paul's life was kept. We know this because the churches were established. We know this because they go back to Syria and Antioch and are refreshed, preparing them for more mission work. And their confidence in the goodness and the sovereignty of Jesus allowed them to obey Him along the way. So again... We must avoid the polar extremes. Because there is a calling upon us, we do not ignore the calling upon us. We were not just rescued from our sin to dwell eternally with God and eat celestial grapes. On the other polar opposite, the mission does not rest upon us entirely. You will burn out, you will lose heart. This is the Lord Jesus' rescue mission. We must measure out what we are willing to sacrifice, what it will cost us, knowing full well because of the promises of the Lord Jesus that any loss we suffer will be rewarded a hundredfold. Along the way, we will be tested sorely. We must remember that for us and for those we are influencing, Jesus is the Messiah, not us. And ultimately, my friends, the mission belongs to the Lord. We should not ignore it. We have a role to play in it. Faithfully, creatively, over time, 
pushing back against the darkness in our own way. All the while trusting and following Him in obedience that He will fulfill His mission. So there is a calling upon us as a church to enter into the darkness on a daily basis. How are you doing? If that's a confusing thing for you to discern and figure out your role in it, please, please talk to somebody. Come to one of the elders or somebody else you trust in the church and say, you know, I really want to be on mission for Jesus, but I, I don't know my role. I don't even really know how to do that, but I want to. I want to obey him. I want to treasure him. I want others to treasure him through my influence. Help me figure out how to push back against the darkness in my sphere, and we'll help you figure that out. But all of us have a role to play. I don't know the people you know. You don't know the people I know. It happens in small and tangible ways. My second son is in fifth grade. Um, They had a special day this past week where they get to pretend like they're citizens of a town. So they all have little jobs and they, they function to create this little economy and so forth. But right in the middle of it, there's lunch. So, um... I went early in the morning to Chick-fil-A, which is, of course, the best fast food restaurant, and, um, and got lunch. They made lunch for me in the morning. So I took it down for lunch. Sam was super excited. It's his favorite lunch. And, um, you know, we got it all out, and we're getting ready to eat. He's surrounded by all of his friends. And uh, I thought we would just kind of pray silently to ourselves because, you know, we're in this unusual setting. Um, my little fifth grader grabbed my hand, and he said, do you want to pray? Now, that might sound like a really small thing, but we're not surrounded by Christian. My kids go to public school. And I was so proud of him because in his own little way, he was saying that I don't care what my friends think about me. Jesus is better. He had a friend over for dinner last night, the same son of mine. And uh, we, Whitney made pizza, and so we sat down to eat. And this friend of his does not come from a believing family. And as soon as he sat down, he just started tearing into his food. Uh, I coach this kid in baseball so I can, you know, speak the truth to him. I said, hey, wait, 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 we don't do that here. Let's wait till everybody sits down. And then we all prayed together. I don't know if he's ever even seen that before. But what we're saying to him is, is we're a family that, that treasures Jesus above all. And, and maybe just in these little small ways, we can inject light into darkness. Whatever sphere of influence God has given you, big or small, whether it be evangelism or raising your children or bringing mercy and productivity and and thoughtfulness and creativity into your workplace or whatever the case may be, God has a role for us as a church and for you individually. We have a chance to light up the darkness all around us by exposing people to Jesus. We are not the light, but He is. And then we have to trust Him with the outcome. So I call you to, to small steps of obedience Will you be willing to do that along with me? There's nothing more exciting than to see the light take over the darkness's boundaries and its territory. May we do that together for the glory of the Lord Jesus, for our joy, and for the joy of many. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us. You have called us through the redemption that you have secured for us, you have called us to join you on your rescue mission. All of us have a role to play. All of us have a way of pushing back against the darkness. 
Will you help us to do that? Will you give us a desire for it? Will you help us not to live numbly? Will you help us not to waste our lives? Will you help us also not to, to think the, the false thought that, that it all rests on us because it doesn't? We look at Paul and Barnabas and we're impressed. We're impressed with, with their courage. We're impressed with their willingness to lay their lives down. But ultimately, it's just because they treasured you more and they loved those around them and were willing to push back against the darkness because they treasured you more highly. So please do that for us. Gently expose those areas of our lives where we treasure other things above you and replace it with a deep and, and settled trusting and treasuring of you. And then use us corporately to bring light in the darkness of this community. Compel us to, to live generously to give of our time and talent and treasure, to lay it down for the glory of Jesus that, so that here in this community and around the world, the darkness might be exposed and the light might pierce it. Use us as a church, I pray, to do that. Do this for your glory. Do it for our joy and the joy of many. And we pray these things, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.